It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Warnings around artificial intelligence are ubiquitous right now, but a little fuzzy and vague. Aside from sometimes clueless chatbots, what should we be worried about with this technology? One of the things that I think we all need to come to grips with is you should be afraid of people, not of AI. The bad actors are us. Um, and this is a technology that can both be used for, for, for good in discovery and creativity, but also can be used for bad by people. As tech companies roll AI out into the public in more and more contexts without any oversight, we're at a pivotal moment as a society. Do we just let this go and see what happens? Or do we come together to figure out some guidance and regulation for how artificial intelligence should be used? Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the 2023 Aspen Ideas Festival. Two of the most accomplished technologists in the country meet on stage to talk about the threats AI can pose and how we should handle them. Eric Schmidt was longtime CEO of Google, and Daniel Huttenlocker is Dean of the Schwartzman College of Computing at MIT. Both are also co-authors of the 2021 book, The Age of AI and Our Human Future. Biographer and former Aspen Institute president, Walter Isaacson, moderates the conversation. Here's Isaacson. Eric, you just got back from Ukraine. Second trip, I think. You've been on the Defense Innovation Board for years and many other things. How is artificial intelligence changing the battlefield in Ukraine? Um, so first, I think the Crown family loss is, is very serious and very sorry. Um, today, some number of hundreds of people died. Uh, the war does not take sun Saturday, Sunday, Monday off. And you have a situation where you have a killing field now along a thousand kilometer border. Uh, today, AI is not a major component of it. The, um, the new technology that's arriving is drones, something that you and I, when we were working with the military, looked at pretty carefully. And um, the Ukrainian strategy is to have what they call an army of drones to try to get advantage on the battlefield. Today, unfortunately, it's roughly even in the sense that the Russian side is heavily, heavily dug in. And when I say dug in, I mean mines, uh, everything you could imagine what dug in means. And the military doctrine, and certainly the Russian military doctrine, is it takes five, three to five times as many offensive people to displace a defensive line. With what would a murmuration of drones do to that uh, thing? Would it be like after World War I, trench warfare is no longer? Uh, um, the best way to say this, having now seen it, is that infantry wars need to stop, right? They're just, we, we have to get it to the point where everybody agrees that if we're going to have conflict, we need to settle it in other ways, because these things are brutal. And they're fought with weapons that are mortars and artillery that are, you know, 50 and 100 years old. So with drones, you have the ability to see the local battlefield, and with kamikaze drones, something I didn't fully understand until I went there, you have the ability to build things which are almost unstoppable as long as you can't block their communications. These are very, very fast, very, very cheap one-time one drones. If you were to network them together and flock them together using AI, which they're not doing yet, then you could have them swarm and follow targets and, and really have an impact. I think it changes war forever. 
Uh, before I get to you, Dan, I want to ask you one more thing about drones, because you and I once went to Creech Air Force Base, and we watched uh, people there, young kids, almost 17, 18 years old, piloting drones over Iraq and other things, and doing things. The doctrine then was there had to be a human in the loop, but as you were talking, it would be a lot more efficient if we didn't have a human in the loop. Explain that scene at Creech, what happened, and what we may well, see in the future. As you recall, we were walking along and we were watching um, a video, and all of a sudden we saw a bombing. First time we saw, you and I saw one, and you said some, something to the effect of, is that real? And there was no comment in the room at all. In, in my experience last week in the war, war normalizes human behavior. And I mourn the Russians who are being killed by these weapons in helicopters and the Ukrainians who are, and I'm not trying to criticize people who have been invaded, they build a, 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 a reel of greatest hits, literally and figuratively. So we've got, to ex we've got to acknowledge the horrendous nature of armed conflict and we've got to figure out ways to stop it. My hope is that the technologies that we are working on will overwhelmingly strengthen democracy, strengthen the way we, we, we run modern societies and not go back to our most primitive urges. Daniel, you were the co-author of The Age of AI, this book, and there are chapters on it that involve both diplomacy and warfare. Tell me how you think that's gonna change things. Well, so actually you were just raising with Eric this uh, question about human in the loop, which has been, uh, it's you know part of the US military doctrine and the use of advanced technologies and including rolling out AI. But one of the things that we talked about in the book is that the pace at which AI decision-making happens is such that human in the loop may only be sort of figuratively human in the loop. If you're, a, if you're a military leader or if you're a battlefield commander, you've been working with this AI system in training for months, years, you've come to trust the thing, it makes good judgments in your experience, and you realize it's operating at a pace that you can't actually analyze the data yourself. You may be in the loop, but you're gonna trust the thing. So I think there are a whole set of issues here, not just about the technologies as they're used, but also about how these technologies change the ways that people interact with one another and go about our daily lives. And I think the battlefield is a place where you really can see that starkly, but it's true in almost every aspect of human endeavor. And I can tell by Eric's little nod here. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, what I was gonna say is I think human in the loop, which we, we strongly agree with, yep. will probably end up looking like the human starts it and the AI finishes it. Yep. And I think we have to think about where that boundary is. It's pretty likely that swarming drones will be uh, started by humans, but will be told to go look for targets. Let me go back to that scene in Creech. It was almost like a video game, because you have all these yeah. young pilots, but they're really just at consoles in an Air Force base in the West, and they're acting as if it is a video game, but the drones are able to do facial recognition, track the person we saw killed as a guy riding a motorcycle. They had done facial recognition. They knew where he had been for the past month. The artificial intelligence um, system said, okay, he actually is somebody we want to target. And boom, it went in and killed him. And they just had a really a, a video game jockey just pushing a button. Um, do you think 
that this notion of the artificial intelligence actually figuring out targets and doing things will be the way wars are fought? Almost certainly. Um, one of the uh, confidential systems that I saw had a, a mouse control. It's on a PC now. It doesn't have this complicated stu structure that you and I saw. And it had a button which was labeled click to kill. Right. Now, these are people in a war where people are shooting at them. I saw people in an ICU train in the process of dying. You know, I'm, I'm not criticizing. I'm observing the normalization of our world. And but, you say, well, go ahead, Dad. I was just going to say, but if you think of, and you know, Eric was talking about this before, if you think about in warfare, if you're trying to do it as humanely as possible, you're trying to minimize collateral damage. And I do think that AI offers huge potential in doing things like positive identification of a target and doing very sort of surgical uh, strikes offers new ways to really look at how do you minimize so, collateral so, damage. So more precise, more deadly, and quicker is pro the probable scenario. But do you think that wars in the future may be fought almost without having to kill large amounts of citizens and it almost would be like, let's do a simulation and see who wins? Um, you're clearly an optimist. <laughs> we have 10,000 years of armed conflict and horrendous behavior against human beings. The triumph of democracy and values epitomized by this group is that we don't do that anymore. We settle these things in other ways. So you could imagine AIs negotiating for outcomes. But at the end of the day, in the particular case of Russia, Russia's got to learn that you can't invade other countries. It's a bad deal. All right, and we need, to f we need to figure out a way that everybody in the world understands to stop this. How do you think, Daniel, China is going to be able to keep up with the U.S. on AI when they, uh, in some ways, are a little bit more constricted in the sharing of information? On the other hand, with their lack of uh, restrictions on privacy, they gather, they sort of vacuum up huge amounts of data. Yeah, so I think one of the consequences of the sort of decoupling of China and the West, and particularly China and the United States, uh, is that development of AI, you know, five, six years ago, was sort of proceeding more or less in lockstep with the US a little bit out ahead. Uh, and with this separation, the development of AI is separating. Uh, and the geopolitical decisions that the China is making and the U.S. is making for other reasons really stand to affect that in major ways. So I think in the United States, we could very much remain in the lead in development of AI, or we could have regulatory things put in place in this country that would actually advantage China over the United States. And, so, and similarly, vi similarly vice versa for China. So I think it's, it's really an open bet who's going to What are you lead. worried about of overregulation? So one of the things I've been saying lately is I'm worried about simultaneous overregulation and underregulation at the same time. Uh, and it sort of sounds like a joke, but unfortunately, I, I think it, it may be the reality that we're heading towards. But particularly when you look at things like regulating early stage research and development and innovation to try to sort of put that genie back in the bottle. Uh, if you look at things like early recombinant DNA research, there were attempts to do that, which luckily were decided at a federal level that we needed to, you know, protect the research but continue to do it. If we do that, then other countries like China will get way ahead of us. They're going to have no compunction about continuing to do R&D. But the flip side is, 
We're now starting to use these technologies in consumer settings where sometimes I really scratch my head and wonder, did anybody think about the risk reward? So that's the sort of under-regulation piece, but the over-regulation worry is that sort of R&D and, and, and really pushing the technology forward. Let me pick a regulatory regime that sort of works. Half this room will think I'm wrong. But the financial regulatory regime in FINRA in the United States. Eric and Dan, is that a model we could use for government regulating AI? Um, the industry and the government are in conversations right now about what you want to regulate. If you imagine an internet regulatory agency, every one of you has a list of things it needs to stop on the internet, right? We're not going to agree on the agenda for that. What I think we can do is come to an agreement on extreme and existential risks. These are the ones I've arbitrarily said, 10,000 people or more deaths. So, so more than the harm to a single individual. And there's evidence that these systems will over time, not today, but over time, be capable of such harm in biology, cyber, and in other cases. And in the US, my guess is that you'll see an agreement among the, the industry and the government around existential risk, and the military will go along. Uh, if you look at China, China has a very, very clear internet regulatory structure, which is you're not allowed to commit sedition, and sedition is not defined. Well, that's not a very good mechanism. The EU has, in the process, 90 to 10, passing a law called the AI-EU Act, which is likely to prohibit the development of open source, which is how AI has moved forward, so that's a loser. Um, Britain has just passed, an, or is in the process of passing an online safety bill, which sounds like a great idea. It's 270 pages long. It's likely to slow them down. So it looks like because of the errors of our partners and, and competitors, we will be in a position to maintain our forward leadership for a while. Uh, today, I would say we are a couple of years ahead of China. If you look at where they are with LLMs, which is sort of what GPT-4 and all the new ones coming this year look like, um, we've, they're sufficiently behind that I think we, we have another round of innovation and excellence in the U.S., which we should pursue. I think I could completely agree with Dan. Yeah. So I, I would say one thing is a lot of the discussion about regulation today in the West is being driven by fear of AI. And one of the things that I think we all need to come to grips with is you should be afraid of people, not of AI. The, 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 the bad actors are us. Um, and this is a technology that can both be used for, for, for good in discovery and creativity, but also can be used for bad by people. And so this notion that we somehow need to, you know, when we talk about existential risks of AI, I think it often gets heard and understood in the world beyond technologists as this AI itself is gonna go off and do something that's an existential risk. The sort of, you know, the, 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 that we're gonna become subjugated to this. It's really much more that these are very powerful tools that, that, that people can use in bad ways and in good ways. And so I think when we think about regulation, we need to think about this in the ways that we've traditionally thought about things, risk, reward, trade-offs, which is what regulation is often about in society, is, is mediating these things. And that tends to be domain-specific. It's hard to have sort of an abstract notion of this new technology and what the risk reward is across all domains. Uh, so I think that, you know, in some areas, something like FINRA, back to your original question, 
can be it can actually be quite good. I mean, certainly uh, because it, you know, it can respond quickly at the pace that industry normally responds, but it's still overseen by the government. But I don't think there's going to be a one-size-fits-all approach to regulation. And, and maybe one example quickly that I would give is just that, you know, so we all see, you know, ChatGPT and, you know, Microsoft has it in, in Bing Chat and so forth, these large language models, as Eric said. One thing that really puzzles me today is that we're allowing those systems to give people advice without any oversight, which we wouldn't let people give advice on. So you can get legal advice, medical advice, tax advice, all kinds of advice from this AI that if I gave that kind of advice, I'd probably be fined and maybe jailed because I don't have any of those kinds of certifications or degrees. So we should be asking ourselves those kinds of so questions. are we going to jail the computer now? <laughs> exactly. No, wait, 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 let me pick up on Eric's question. A, an AI system created, say, by Microsoft or Google, uh, ChatGPT, OpenAI, gives you really bad financial advice. Whom do you sue? Well, so I'm, I, I'm, not, a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer. The audience says everyone. That's <laughs> <Yes>, right. <laughs> my, my, my favorite example is, you're, I don't know about you all, but in California, they have this notion of a, of a moving stop where you don't fully stop. I don't know if anyone has ever done that. And so you can imagine, you can imagine the self-driving car um, learns to do that. And so the policeman stops you, and the policeman says, why didn't you stop at the stop sign? I said, I'm not driving the car. And the car says, I did, officer. And the officer says, why didn't you stop? He says, I don't know. But the because the system can't explain. The transportation board has already stopped Tesla from doing the rolling stops. We have a regulatory. Henry Ford invented There's the not car. a rolling stock button in my Tesla? <laughs> there is? There is not? <laughs> but... Uh, but the Transportation Safety Board has ordered them to do a full stop, which only about 5% of Americans do at a stop sign, right? Wow. Nobody in this room has ever come to the full stop. <laughs> now, when Ford invented the automobile, the technology got invented first. Then we had rules like stop signs, full stop at stop signs. Should we let the this happen again, where we have the technology invented first and then try to figure out the rules? So I think it's very important that responsibility lie heavily on those individuals and mainly organizations that deploy the technology for some particular purpose. Right? So when you know, a big company says this thing can give advice on anything, then they should be liable for that. Uh, but to slow down the technology development, as I said before, I think is a huge mistake. By the way, have you read the fine print in ChatGPT? It says you can't use any of the information for anything because it's wrong, I, right? Yeah. Read the fine print, right? <laughs> these, systems, these systems hallucinate, right? You can trick them into completely. My favorite yep. hallucination was I asked it, write an essay on why all skyscrapers above 300 me meters should be made of butter. It produced the most beautiful argument. Did you know that butter is environmentally friendly, that the buildings will be safer, it uses less material, less CO2, and so forth? So a week later, I did the same query, and it said, that is a terrible idea. So someone between the first query and the second query taught it something. So not only are these systems yep. wrong, but they're learning. 
And what happened if it learned the wrong thing as opposed to the right thing in my example? We but, don't really know yet. But just, I was gonna say, I think one of the most important things is how do the users, how do people perceive these systems? So one of the big confusions I see out there in the world right now is, is the analogy that's made between search engines and, and, and these chatbots. They essentially have nothing to do with each other. In a search engine, you're getting referred to a place where you can look and decide whether that place and the material there makes sense to you. With a chatbot, the chatbot is synthesizing some type of thing that it thinks is going to be compelling to you. And compelling and looking up, you know, factual or lies, search engines don't only produce facts, completely different. And the problem or issue with the chatbots, also the advantage with the chatbots, it feels very human when you have this kind of dialogue and you start to trust them in a very different way than when you're going to a search engine and looking for something. So I think part of the responsibility regime here does need to start to think about how are these things designed and what's the human machine interaction? It's not purely about what does the technology do from a technologist's perspective. And this is why it's so important that we start to look at these technologies in ways that are not only technologists driving it, but people who are looking at how humans really think about and use this technology, sort of the broader societal kinds of questions around the technology. We can't repeat the social media mistake of drinking the Kool-Aid, you know, 20 years ago we thought social media was going to make the world better and nothing could go wrong. That looks a little naive at the moment. I also think now with AI we shouldn't now make the opposite mistake of saying the dystopian future is what's going to happen. We should regulate it heavily. Well, we let me pick to, up we, on we your to go social media question because Bob Steele and I have talked about and Vivian Schiller and I uh, have been talking about here that we made that big mistake when social media came along. You know, at the Aspen Institute, there are often great commissions that come out. Dunn and Luger figure out how to get rid of nuclear weapons after the fall of the Berlin Wall. There was not the right group figuring out uh, social media. And as you said, it's not necessarily the technology's fault, it's the people's fault. But social media, I'll push back a bit, its algorithms and its architecture, actually allowed greater harm for people to do in social media settings. Should we right now create some commission, some working group that will prevent us from doing to, with AI what we did mistakenly, as you just said, with social media? Um, the answer from my perspective is yes, because the two are the same problem. So in 2024, we're going to have an election. Yeah. And every side, every grassroots group, and every politician will use generative AI to do harm to their opponents. And it will involve spreading misinformation. The social media companies en masse are not ready for this. They don't know where this media come from. They don't market. The generative AI systems don't mark that they were generated. This can all be done technologically. Um, and there doesn't seem to be any political movement or any bipartisan uh, agreement to solve this problem. So in our country, unless you have bipartisan agreement, nothing happens. Therefore, 20, uh, 2024 will be full, full of false information that anyone can generate. And I'll give you an example of this. Um, it, Prigozhin, right, Wagner Group in 2016 used a couple hundred people manually to interfere with our elections. This is well established in history. Um, and God knows what he'll do from Belarus, and, and it, but assuming he's, he'll be up to stuff, he'll or try Moscow. it again. Or Moscow, wherever he ends up in jail or what have you. Um, so 
The same scenario can be done in the following way. Um, there is an open source model, a formerly open source model called Llama that was released unintentionally by Facebook. It's the strongest of the current mid-tier open source models. It, it has been now re-engineered to run on your personal computer in your basement. So if you assume that you're in your basement and you are sort of criminally insane or just a bad person, you construct an entire influence campaign using this. You generate fake identities, you generate fake writings, you generate fake cross-posting, and you do it yourself from your own home. That's the possibility today that we will face in the next year. We need to get organized around this. And, and what could you do? <laughs> this, is, this is a very tough problem. So, and as Eric said, this is not just about the AI. These are problems that have been there with social media. In fact, you know, I think still today, forget about put AI aside for a moment, we trust what we see online much more than we should. And especially we trust what we see in social media more than we should. You know, most of us grew up in a world where, the, where print was something that was authoritative. And so uh, we still view it that way. So AI now is this huge amplifier for the fact that you should not trust anything in print. And by the way, now you shouldn't trust any images and you shouldn't trust any videos and you shouldn't trust any audio either. So part of this is not just technological, it's a, it's a shift even before AI in, 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 in how we understand the world around us. L let me add that- And we can't agree politically what to do. But there's a really core fundamental human problem. When you're born, you're taught to trust what you see and hear. Dan and I are telling you, you can't trust anything that you see or hear, right? This disconnect, we need to be wrong. Unless you physically experience it, right? This sort of comes back to, you know, people's crazy misconceptions about what AI is. AI has no physical experience, uh, at least in any AIs that we know of today. It's not human, it's not alive. You need to trust your lived experience. This notion that we're able to use vast information networks from around the world to understand what's happening all over the place was even bankrupt before AI. Wait, 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 use your lived experience. <laughs> well, well, I, I'm trying to figure out to take which vaccine. What's my lived experience gonna help me with? Ask your friend. You, you, well, but read on you, social you, media. You don't, don't know where your friend you got their information from. We, we may, yeah. you know, until we figure out this problem, I've gotten much more cautious about anything I believe. Look, the number one spreader of COVID misinformation was a doctor, a licensed doctor in Florida, who had a business selling supplements. And he was very, very clever in his use of social media, and he had did more damage to terms of death rates in COVID than any other person I can find, because he was financially motivated to do it. He was ultimately disbarred. The fact that the social media companies knew about it and didn't act is on their moral conscience. People died as a result of this person. So the reason I'm so focused on this is that it's fun when it's, you know, uh, the, the reporter, the AI told the reporter that the AI loved him and he should leave his wife. That's entertaining. But when people are actually suffering, right, from the harms of this, the government and we as leaders have to solve this problem in a way so that's So we get more. rid of Section 230, which removes the accountability of so, platforms. So Section 230, for everybody's benefit, was passed in 1994, and it was at a time when the when companies that like the ones I were in uh, was in were uh, essentially passed through caches, right? The information would go from one human to another, and the companies had no role in the selection of content. That is demonstrably false now. So if you think about it, um, if you're an evil social media CEO, and I'm not naming anyone, 
Um, your, your evilness is you want to maximize revenue. The way you maximize revenue is you maximize engagement. What is the provably best way to increase engagement? It's outrage. Outrage. <laughs> Uh, outrageous stuff is, is shared seven or greater more times with each other. And so we've just got to deal with this fact, right? Their, their interests are not financially in alignment with our well-being, right? That's got to get addressed. It's either addressed morally or by convention or by law or by criminalization. So in the, in, to go back to Section 230, Section 230 should be limited so that there's some liability in the most egregious cases and there's a whole bunch of cases where, for example, social media has taken really, really forbidden speech, harmful speech, I'm gonna kill you, you know, you know that kind of stuff. It's, it, free speech does not include some things. And yet they use Section 230 as an exemption knowing that they should have suppressed it. But, but I think Eric touched on a really critical point I just wanna underline here, which is that all of these, you know, not just social media systems, almost anything that's providing information to you online, is amplifying certain things. It's not just a neutral presenter of information. It's a machine editor or a machine curator without human editing, without human curation. And the notion that whoever's doing that should have no responsibility for it, I think, is, is By the, when, doesn't make sense. It wasn't the original intent. When, when but should that also be true of a chatbot? Yes. Well, the chatbots are actually worse. And, and the reason is we don't know what the doctrine for what the chatbot should say should be. So let's say we end up with a racist chatbot, right? And it's open source. Now, and this is an, an, a training error. We didn't mean to, but somehow it gets released, right? Is it okay for people to use a racist chatbot? I would say no. And yet from a free speech perspective, does free speech apply to the chatbot? It applies to the humans. My position, so we're clear, is I'm in favor of human free speech, not for computer, not computer free speech, right? I, don't, I think it's reasonably defensible, my position. Right? I think the Constitution was written before computers existed. So, so I would come back on this to fear of people, not fear of AI, which is that biased AI learned its bias from biased people. Nobody went off and created a biased AI. What happened is it went and looked at a whole bunch of, you know, sort of general human quote-unquote behavior as captured on the internet. So you're saying that a racist chatbot should exist. No, I, no, just that, no. That's, that would ha that's a consequence. Of no, that. I'm just saying it learned from people. I think what's happening now, people are attributing to AI the fact that it's revealing ugly truths about us as a society and as humanity. And I think the ways that we need to approach those things are to understand that this is revealing something about people, and if it's something that we can agree as a society that we want to mediate, and personally I believe you know, that racism and sexism and, and a number of other isms are things we should be trying to remove from our society, we need to approach that as a broader societal question. It's not just a question about AI. AI plays a very important amplifying role in that, and a very important role in revealing that, but the ways to address this are not just to look at the AI. Wait, 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 I, I'm, I'm kind of confused here, because what you're saying is we shouldn't even try to address what AI is doing on misinformation and this until we tell all of society, quit being racist and being misinformed. No, I, what I'm saying, I think, what I'm saying is I don't think we can address it. Sure. So let's say up here, the three of us, we agree, maybe we can get this whole room to agree that, you know, this particular kind of uh, AI shouldn't say these kinds of things. 
there's gonna be whole segments of our society that disagree with that. It's the same problem we're seeing on social media, right? When, when the social media companies try to regulate something, the right says it's suppressing right-wing speech, the left says it's suppressing left-wing speech. We, we, can't, we can't get to a point of agreement. So, so uh, let me help. So I just think it's a deeper there, societal problem. I think there's also an enumeracy problem that one of the things that I learned at Google was that you're, the people who are crazy in some area, so please use racist as, a, as an undesirable category, they have lots of time to be racist. And they have a lot more time to be racist than normal people because this is what they believe and they believe it obviously falsely. And so they flood the zone. And so what you're seeing in social media is you're seeing advocates who are flooding the zone. This is the Steve Bannon quote. We're gonna, sorry to say it, his quote was, we're gonna flood the zone with shit. Right, that was his campaign strategy. Remember, look it up, look up the quote, you'll read it, right? And by the way, it worked, right? So we have every evidence that many, many copies of Steve Bannon, who are obviously immoral, illegal, or what have you, are busy trying to flood the zone. The systems are not robust to that attack. That's the point. It's not that there's more racism than we thought, although maybe you and I were naive. Racism's always been there, but they're busy flooding the zone. And pick your other poison, there's so many other special interest groups. Let me give you an example. Suppose you decide that AI is better than a jury at deciding whether somebody's guilty, or is better risk to get a piece of insurance from Allstate, one of our sponsors, or <laughs> to be on parole. And you decide that having humans do it will be filled with bias, and maybe you just want to take humans out of that loop. Does that make sense to you? So to me, I think this is a, actually a fantastic question, because I think it, it points to a broader framing that we have wrong, which is we're thinking about is AI better or are humans better? And that's, that's underlying everything. We think about AI as replacing humans, it can do things better than humans. I think what we're seeing now, uh, and actually in, 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 in some of the, the, the bail decision kinds of things, this is being shown quite clearly, is it's the combination of human decision-making and algorithmic or AI decision-making that works much better. Because these each have different ways of doing things, different bias, you're bringing different ways of thinking together. Uh, and so to me, we should be thinking about AI as how does it really complement human decision-making in ways that lead to better outcomes, not how does it replace or contrast with There's humans. been two schools of thought in the history of the digital revolution ever since Ada Lovelace and Turing, one of which is that the goal is creating artificial intelligence, machines that think, pass a Turing test, whatever. And the other is the notion of augmenting human intelligence, which uh, actually has prevailed. Uh, and having a closer user interface between humans and machines is the great goal, so we can bond with them. Whether it's a graphical user interface or Siri where you can speak to it, or Elon Musk put a chip in your brain so that you can share brain waves. He, he should start. What? He should be the first. He should be the first. <laughs> uh, it'll be easy because they'll have a place to do it on Mars. Uh, <laughs> do you think that we're in a new revolution in which the combinations of humans and machines, the symbiosis that J.C.R. Licklider and others talked about, uh, will prevail or that the machines will march on and develop a mind so, of their own. So I think we're making a mistake now in thinking about AI 
uh, as being a replacement rather than augmentation. I think the, the general sort of broad understanding out there is AI is competing with people. I, I take a little less sanguine view maybe than you do of where we've gotten so far. I think there's been a little bit of a sort of battle thus far between technology augmenting humans and technology sort of competing with humans. But I think going forward with AI, it's becoming increasing. Like the thing that excites me most about machine learning, which is what's driving artificial intelligence these days, is the incredible power of it for scientific discovery. And that's not AI going off and discovering things by itself. It's AI able to help humans discover things that humans couldn't discover alone. And that is the symbiotic, and I'm glad you mentioned Licklider, because he often gets overlooked, or Lick, as he <laughs> used to be called back in the day, JCR Licklider. His vision, I think, is really compelling about human-machine augmentation. So, so the, um, I think the, the best way to understand this is imagine the benefit to the world with an AI tutor that allows each and every human to become as smart and educated as they possibly can in their language and in their culture in an appropriate way. Imagine an AI doctor that provides the medical services and information to the vast parts of the world that don't have access to the kind of medical information that we have, especially working with undertrained nurses and things like that who are their primary healthcare thing. The benefit to billions of people of the spread of this technology are enormous, and that ignores the incredible gains that are occurring in physics and biology. Uh, at MIT, there's a great deal of work in new drugs and so forth, which we can talk about. We can go on and on and on about it. Um, so I think that a reasonable answer is that Licklider is correct, for the next five to ten years. That's not very long. Um, <laughs> that's a, that's Dan, an eternity. I'm more optimistic in, in than our Eric. World. <laughs> Dan mentioned earlier that large language models don't have lived experience and said that's right. a certain limitation. When you get to what has been called artificial general intelligence, AGI, it will be consuming data, let me say, or taking in inputs that are not just text and billions of documents, but it'll have cameras, it'll have ears, it'll have sound, it'll walk around, it will replicate all human senses and probably 10 senses we could never dream of. Do you think we will get to a day of AGI in which machines will be, I think the word you use in the book, which I don't know what it means, is sentient, where they can really Dan, Dan wrote that sentence. Um, Dan, <laughs> I was going to blame that one on Kissinger. Dan, so, so Dan and I spent three years arguing over this point. So I'll make the affirmative case and then he can argue with me. So I think that for the next 10 or so years, these systems are going to be under pretty good human control. And over that 10 years, the following things will get solved. Hallucinations. These systems have no memory. They're not current. You'll notice they were trained. They take six months. They're not current. Um, they can't do stepwise planning. In other words, if you ask them, show me a recipe, they can't actually show you a series of steps. They can't interact with you in the steps unless you take the output from the previous step and feed it into something called the context. And how window. solvable is that? All of these are being solved. The people, the optimists, if that's your view of optimism in the industry, believe these will be solved within two years. So let's assume that they're, as usual, they're off by a factor of two, so it's four years. So it's five years. So the question is, at that point, you've got a system that is current, learning, quicker than we are, has all the inputs, this sets up your scenario, what then happens, right? Can it 
invoke its own initiatives? Can it take initiatives? And I'll give you a way that this could occur. This is science fiction now. Let's imagine, I don't know about you, but do you wake up in the morning one day and you're bored with whatever you were doing yesterday and you want to do something completely new? Well, you could do the same thing to a computer. You could say, as of nine o'clock on Monday morning, you're to stop learning about physics and start learning about French horn, right? Now, how long would it take it for it to understand everything about French horn? A lot less than a human, right? So you can imagine the ability to program these things with some randomness to begin to appear to have some form of sentience. Another example, in order to do planning, each step to decide the next step requires an inner dialogue. It actually has to talk to itself using human terms, and it's obviously not talking, to decide what does the next step look like. Is that the beginning of consciousness? An we don't agency, know. meaning an agency. it actually has its own, can I call it, free will? Well, an example would be, I give it an assignment to, solve, to, to learn everything. Uh, and it's busy, right? And it takes lots of computers and you're spending lots of money. And one day it, it has a question and it has learned how to email someone. So it sends a question to a physicist saying, can you run this experiment for me? Send me back in email form the results. Now, how close is that to intelligence? I don't know, but it's pretty scary. So, so to me, I think there's a... So Probably Eric and I are on slightly different time scales about which these technologies will evolve this way, but I, I think that most of the problems we see today will be gone in some time frame, whether it's five or 10 or and 20. And replaced by new ones. Five or 10 or 20 <laughs> years, yes, always replaced by new ones. Yeah. But, but I think that, you know, to me, the fundamental question here about this broader issue of what the end result of this might be is, what's the difference between an extremely accurate simulation of something and the thing? If you really believe there's no difference, then I think these AIs are us. But I at least believe that there is some very fundamental difference between an extremely accurate simulation of my life and my actual life. What is that and, fundamental difference? Well, so, you know, for people who have any kind of faith or spirituality, I think that's a piece that most people would say does, doesn't show up there. Consciousness, hard to say, it's harder to define maybe, but, um, but let's talk about sort of human free will. You have to ask a question when you say free will, does your dog have free will? Does it, is it different from human free will, right? But, but, so there's what I'll call sort of animate free will and, and human free will, which is much more sort of premeditated and, and, and so forth. Um, and I, I don't believe that, that things like human level free will, spirituality, uh, that those are things that come naturally out of some system that's just a simulation. You could have simulation of human emotion, you could have simulation of human faith, but I believe that that's fundamentally different than actually what we experience as people. But these become questions of your own beliefs, of philosophy, of religion, of, um, and, uh, I think these are things that humanity will be facing in some time frame. I tend to think it's after my lifetime. Eric thinks it's, you know, sooner, but... <laughs> so, so I, I like to do this to Dan. So here's what's really going to happen. First, you're going to get AGI, okay? And it's going to happen in our lifetimes, five to 10 years. Then the computers are going to develop their own language to talk to each other, yeah. at which point they become super intelligent. And that language is going to be in a language that we don't understand. What are we going to do then, folks? 
I propose Disconnect unplugging the them. Folks, <laughs> <laughs> we watched 2001 as the big and we don't invent how. Pull the Daniel, plug. Daniel, unplug the, thank the computer, much. please. We're all going to unplug for a few minutes. Thank, okay, thank you, <laughs> Eric Schmidt is a technologist, entrepreneur, and philanthropist. He joined Google in 2001 and helped grow the company from a Silicon Valley startup to a global leader in technology alongside founders Sergey Brin and Larry Page. Daniel Huttenlocker is the inaugural dean of the Schwarzman College of Computing at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He studies computer vision, social media, and understanding AI. Walter Isaacson is the Leonard Lauder Professor of American History and Values at Tulane University. From 2003 to 2018, he was president and CEO of the Aspen Institute, where he's now a distinguished fellow. He's also the author of several books, including a biography of Steve Jobs and the forthcoming biography of Elon Musk. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Thank you.